Lord, we are grateful for the chance together, um, and even a day set aside to uh, remember to uh, honor, celebrate our moms for all that they do, all that they have done for us. Um, they are truly gifts for all of us. Uh, Lord, we pray for uh, the the families, the the employees involved in the, in the fire across the street last night. Um, we don't know all, what all the impact of that's going to be yet, but we know there will be some some down downtime and some. Uh, certainly income lost and, and uh, jobs delayed. And Lord, we just pray that you would uh, show yourself to these people um, in uh, and the, the, the sense of your presence and, and how you provide for them. And um, Lord, that there would be some, some blessing that comes out of this uh, difficult time for many. Um, and, and I pray that for those of us who are part of this community, that if we, if we know the owners, uh, um, employees, um, Lord, if there's, if there's something that we need to do, something we can do, that you make that clear to us also um, so that we can be your extension, your hands and feet in this community. Uh, and we thank you for the chance to go through your word, to spend time hearing what you have laid out for us. Um, Lord, I pray that we hear this this morning with open hearts and open minds. It is not going to be easy to say in some cases. It's not going to be easy to hear, but I pray that you give us a spirit of humility and gentleness and peace and love as we go into the second half of Ephesians. Thank you for your love, your generosity towards us. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we discussed, the first half of Ephesians was all focused on, on really Paul's overview of the gospel of salvation. And, and he made it abundantly clear that it is, it's available, it's, it's functional, it is applicational to everyone. Salvation is a function of God's grace exclusively. Period. The end. Salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Paul has already made this clear for us. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, he says, by grace you've been saved, through faith. Period. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. It's not a result of our works, so that no one can boast about our works. Not that we would but he puts that in there just to remind us it's not about us. So as a result of God's grace and not our works, we're saved. We have a new lease on life. We're freed to live a new life. And not only are we freed to live a new life, but we are equipped to live a new life. We're equipped to move towards holiness, which is what Paul's kind of referring to in the next verse there. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So before our salvation, before we accepted God's gift of grace that resulted in forgiveness of sins and, and get, has given us a new purpose, we kind of assumed that we could live however we wanted. We even deluded ourselves into thinking that there were no real consequences for our choices. We're free, autonomous agents. We can do whatever we want. And frankly, it's a delusion that we still buy into from time to time, even as Christians. Well, that little sin really isn't going to hurt anybody. This, this, this little thing, no one's even going to know about it. It's not really going to hurt anybody. But now that we know that by grace we've been saved from the spiritual consequences of sin. We've been saved from an eternity of separation from God. Not only should we live in a way that pleases the God who saved us, but genuine faith, real gratitude, makes us want to live in a way that pleases and glorifies God. That's how it's supposed to work. The truth is, 
sanctification, the, the, the process of becoming who and what we were created to be, what we were intended to be, it is a process. It requires time and commitment on our part. It requires the practical application of spiritual truths that cause us to grow into spiritual maturity. It's intentional. And judging by our own experiences, or at least judging by my experiences, it also involves making many, many, many mistakes and hopefully learning from them along the way. So sanctification is taking these kind of theoretical ideas of Christian doctrine or the orthodoxy we saw in the first half, and it, and it takes those, uh, those theoretical ideas and makes them practical and functional for how we are supposed to live. That's the orthopraxy part of the second half. And we saw a few weeks ago, uh, Paul, who's writing this letter to the church at Ephesians, knows firsthand the challenges that we're going to face on this spiritual journey. And so Paul says, I'm, I'm going to pray for you guys. I'm going to pray for this church in Ephesus, and here's what I'm going to pray for. I'm going to pray for you to have strength. I'm going to pray strength for the church, strength for the individuals in the church, but, but collectively strength for the church that comes from the Holy Spirit, because you're going to need it. He prays for an increasing depth in our relationship with Jesus. He put it in terms of being rooted and grounded. He prays for understanding, that, w- that we would have a growing understanding, not just a one-time awareness of God's grace, but this ongoing, uh, fully-orbed, multidimensional, increasing awareness of the love that Christ has for us. And he put it in terms of breadth and length and height and depth. God's love is it's everywhere. We can't escape it. And then he prays that we would begin to experience the fullness of God, that it would permeate every aspect of our being and our living. And if we continue to grow in those areas, pretty soon we find that the ought-tos really transition into want-tos. Which is pretty remarkable if you think about this spirit-led process that's involved where we transition from selfish and individualistic to selfless and communal. So this new life leads us to a new purpose, which is revealed. It's expressed in new relationships. It's a new understanding of family. And Paul starts the second half of Ephesians, the the orthopractic how-to manual, the how-to-live-it-and-not-just-say-it part of Christianity. He starts this by calling for unity, among the saints. He says, chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It's only three verses, and it's about 14 sermons. I'm going to cut it down to 11 for you this morning, just so... We get out of here in time for dinner. But Paul starts here with a reminder that we have been called. He, he urges us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. It's, it's, and it's our Christian duty to live up to that calling. So just by way of reminder, not that any of us needs it, but what is the calling again? What, what is it we're supposed to do? And this is the second of six different references in this letter on how we should walk correctly. This is a significant theme in this book. So what does it mean to live up to our calling? Well, basically it means living in a way that pleases the Lord. It's being obedient. 
And this goes back even to the early stages of, of chapter 1, where Paul wrote, He chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless. We have this inheritance so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. So, in a nutshell, as followers of Christ, as recipients of salvation through grace, as beneficiaries of his inheritance, we were called to be, to live holy and blameless, to live a life, to to walk in such a way that praises and glorifies God. Whew, that's a relief. We thought it was going to be challenging. So let that sink in just a little bit. I mean, according to these verses, we are to live out this calling. We are to be holy and blameless and God-honoring, and we're to do it with humility and gentleness and patience and love. So if we buy into the first part, if, if, if we believe that Jesus was who he said he was, he, he lived and died and resurrected from the dead, and, and, and he, he will forgive our sins, if we buy into that and we accept this gift of salvation— now we have to live up to that. We have to live to the calling part of that. And it seems like we kind of immediately get smacked in the face with these seemingly impossible standards for how to, how to carry that out. I mean, we're called to be holy, and we have to be humble about it? Come on, man. I'm sorry, but if I'm holier than you are, and I'll let you make your own determination determination about that, but I think we all know the answer. If I'm holier than you are, I kind of want you to know it. And if at all possible, I'd like you to acknowledge it somehow. Maybe just a public, uh, public praise of some kind. Um, small gifts are always good. If you could come by the house every other Thursday and wash my feet, I think that would go a long way. Uh, now, I'm using extreme examples, obviously, to make a point. And the point is, humility can be difficult. (laughs) It does not come naturally to us. Our old nature seems to want to make constant comparisons, uh, walking-worthy comparisons, holiness comparisons with those around us. And more often than not, we come out on top. Well, at least I don't do that. I'm probably more spiritual than that guy for these reasons because we are pretty great. I'm pretty sure I'm one of God's better ideas. I may have used this before. I can't remember. I'm old. But in the late 70s, this is so perfect. Mac Davis had a bit of a radio hit with lyrics that went, Oh, Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. I can't wait to look in the mirror because I get better looking each day. To know me is to love me. I must be a heck of a man. Oh, Lord, it's hard to be humble, but I'm doing the best that I can. Now, in a very tongue-in-cheek kind of way, maybe, I don't know, old Mac was on to something here. He's kind of nailed the human condition. And as Christians, we are not immune from struggles with humility. That's why it's the first thing Paul mentions here. Humility is necessary to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And he's writing this to Christians. He's writing this letter to the church. And he says, humility, number one. In Romans 12, Paul reminds the the, the Christians there that we're not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought. 
In Colossians 3.12, he says we have to put on humility. It is not part of our original equipment post-Eden. It doesn't come naturally. And apparently it's a bit of a universal concern. It doesn't matter which church he writes to. He writes, humility is kind of an issue. You need to pay attention to hum- humility. It's, it's a problem outside of the church and within the church. How easily, and this doesn't apply to you, but probably someone you know, how easily, how quickly do we spot out that, that moat in someone else's eye from 500 paces and we fail to see the giant sequoia sticking out of our own eye? I mean, we're quick to call out others for how they have disappointed us without ever considering how we have probably disappointed everybody around us. Do not think more highly of ourselves than we ought. Which really is to say, don't think much of yourself at all. Humility comes from the Latin base word for low. So it speaks to lowliness of mind a low estimate of oneself. One definition says humility is an act of submission. It's, it's lowering ourselves before others. Like when Jesus lowered himself to become one of us. And humility is foundational for unity of the saints, and it requires effort. But we also need to be very aware within the confines of the church especially, of false humility. When we pretend we're humble, we want, we want other people to think of us as humble. We, we present ourselves as humble when we know we're not. It's, we're really the opposite of that. Even doing things where the appearance is right, but the motivation is wrong. And there are a lot of little ways this can creep in to the church Perhaps we express concern. We're we're concerned about someone else's behavior or their choices, but mostly because it makes us feel better about our own choices. I have seen, I've heard Christians quote scripture to someone about their behavior or their choices because it gave them a sense of moral superiority in calling out someone else's behavior. I think we, we, we can sometimes listen to people. You know, we, we, we are sympathetic, it seems, to someone, but it's really just so that we can offer our own wisdom or advice to them. Sometimes we broadcast how charitable we are or how much volunteer work we do. Or, uh, and, and maybe without even realizing, it's kind of boasting about our humility. There are a couple of uh, examples of false humility that I feel um, is especially germane to the church today. Um, I think there's a a false humility where we impose our opinion or our life choices onto other people as the truth. We have it all figured out. We just want other people to benefit from our surpassing wisdom. So we figured out how to live life this way, and this should apply to everyone else as well. And I'm not trying to step on any toes, but I'm probably going to. Um, I see, have seen this a lot in the Christian homeschool community. And I will say I am a fan of homeschooling, but I also understand that it may not be for everyone at all times. But I hear people say, 
I've heard people say, we have decided to raise and teach our kids this way because we're following the prompting of the Lord. But I've also heard people say, we have decided to raise and teach our kids this way because we are following the prompting of the Lord. You hear that difference, right? Same exact words, but the second one seems a little charged. It it seems a little loaded. It seems to imply that what we have found to be true for our family should be true for every family, every other family as well. You should do the same thing we're doing, or you're not following the Lord. It's even gone to an extreme in some homeschool writing things I've seen where your salvation may be in question if you're not homeschooling. So I'm just going to say, that is arrogant, and it is hurtful for anyone to make this kind of claim. You may well be correct in saying that you are following God's leading for your family. I hope that's the case. But when you impose your obedience onto others, it kind of assumes that you know better how to deal with everyone else's kids than the parents God gave to them. It assumes that God has made you his mouthpiece for everyone who falls into this particular season of life. It assumes that the Holy Spirit is not leading those other families into what is correct for them, and we need to be careful. That is pride disguised as humility or obedience. Another term we use sometimes is legalism. What's true for me is probably true for everybody else. Man, it got quiet. I think there's another. <laughs> I think there's another kind of uh, classic example of false humility in the church, and that's just the whole I, the, the whole idea of us being kind of judgy. And if you think about it, we we all understand that that judges are experts. They're you know they, they presumably know more about the law, for example. So we put them in charge of the courtroom. Judges know more about baking, so we put them in charge of the county fair and you know judging the baked goods. I mean, we, we understand that there's there, there's some more authority there, and so they can render decisions based on their increased knowledge and discernment. So when we judge other people for their obvious shortcomings. We're really setting ourselves up as self-appointed experts on whatever that is, whether it's law or culture or Christian behavior or, or how they should raise their kids or how their marriage should function, how they dress. I mean, whatever it is, we become the experts when we judge them too harshly. Judging in that context is not conducive to humility. It still sets us up as the really, really good one, the smart one. We've got it figured out. So I've been spending a lot of time on this issue, I know. I think this humility thing is a big issue. Uh, And the truth is, I think these last couple of examples have become something of a spiritual pandemic in the middle of a viral pandemic. People are leaving the church. For a variety of reasons... But one kind of consistent thing that I hear or that I read is that people are leaving and they're blaming the church. It's too rigid. It's too dogmatic. It's too institutional. It's not 
woke enough, maybe. It's filled with a bunch of hypocrites. I mean, all kinds of reasons why people are leaving the church. They're making me wear a mask. They're not enforcing masks. They stopped serving the coffee that I like. We can come up with all kinds of reasons why it's a good idea to leave the church. And sometimes it's not even that they're wrong in their assessment in some cases. I mean, I totally, completely understand somebody being disappointed and disillusioned with people that we look up to or people that we respect, and they fall short of Christ's expectation for them, but of course, our expectation for them as well. Which is why the church can be messy at times. It can be ugly at times. It can be childish. We can be pedantic. We can be wrong at times. It might even be necessary for somebody to leave a church, but according to Scripture, it's never right for a Christian to leave the church. That is not unity of the saints. And and I have to wonder if, if someone who's making the decision to stop attending church altogether, someone who claims to be a Jesus follower, I have to wonder if humility is part of the issue there, maybe a false humility. When we begin to see other Christians who aren't living up to our standards, when we become really skilled, really gifted at overlooking our own sin, while we can highlight easily the sins of everyone else, when we judge other Christians for not being Christian enough, maybe, we begin to see the bride of Christ in an altogether negative light. And it may well be that the church has all of those issues. But we have to battle that pull, that sense that, and we're just a little better than all of those other fallen, failed people. We have to fight it. And humility is not the only thing on this list of foundational principles for unity of the church. It's a big one. It's the first on the list, but it's not the only one. Not only are we called to live with humility, but Paul also says we need gentleness with each other, which seems like a logical follow-on after humility. We need to be gentle with one another. And gentleness, by the way, is one of the spiritual fruits. Remember, that's as recipients of salvation, of grace, we're called to, to develop those fruit, and gentleness is one of those. It also means meekness, soft-tempered, Lowly. Ah, there's that low word again. We're called to have patience, which doesn't mean completely passive and accepting of all things, but patience means calm and, and, and long-suffering and tolerant, but in the right sense of the word, not the way it's been defined for us over the last decade or so. Uh, tolerance... Uh, uh, Patience means overlooking short-term grievances with a longer-term perspective. We're going to allow them time to grow and mature. And then it says we're to bear with one another in love. Think about that phrasing for a minute. If as a church, as the body of Christ, is this odd collection, assemblage of Christians, if we were all in agreement all the time, if we were all living holy, blameless, and God-honoring lives, we wouldn't be told that we need to bear 
with one another. I mean, we would all be perfect instead of just some of us. Bear here, it's a verb. It's a call to action. It's an ongoing process. It's a call for each of us as fellow believers to try to get along with, in as loving a way as possible, the rest of the believers. With humility and gentleness and patience. And we forget sometimes that we are called to bear with them just as they are called to bear with us. I mean, it's really easy to point out the problems in the church. You don't have to look very hard. I can see about 70 problems right now. (laughs) And honestly, as a church, as the church, we often don't do ourselves any favors. You know, the, the national pastors or whoever say things, they do things, and they get caught in things, and it just makes the rest of us look bad. We don't do ourselves a lot of favors sometimes. And people like to point those out. The media likes to run stories about them. And if you have been in church for any length of time on your own, you no doubt have your own stories of disappointment and frustration. And some of them are probably justified, and some of them maybe not. I don't know. But the irony is, when we condemn the church, when we condemn our fellow believers from our lofty position of you know, probable false humility for not being loving enough, loving enough, for not being supportive enough, for not being patient enough, whatever it may be, then we are committing the exact same sin. It's a, it's a kettle pot situation. We're all tarnished. That's why we are all called to be gentle and patient and loving with people who are less, well, less humble than me, for starters. People who are less holy, less blameless, less God-honoring. We're called to support each other, not condemn each other. So as this starts to sink in, over time, as we start to process, we begin to realize that what it is we have been called to And then how it is we're supposed to live up to that with humility and gentleness and patience. I mean, our immediate reaction to all this ought to be, oh, Lord, give me strength, which is what Paul just prayed for before he led into this section. It's almost like he knew how difficult this was going to be for us. Well, he goes on. He starts to kind of present the antidote for the anti-church virus. He says, there's one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So rather than choosing to see how everybody else is failing to live up to our standards of holiness or righteousness, Paul reminds us that we don't get to set the standard. I mean, in the first place, it's not up to you. We don't get to sit in judgment of everybody else using our sliding scale for ourselves, but holding everybody else to a pretty tight, rigid set of expectations. So rather than focus on how we are all different and how we're all living differently, Paul says, let's start with, let's remember all these things that you have in common. And he lists seven things that we are to rally around for the sake of unity. 
Now, we know from Scripture, if you've read ahead, you know how the story ends. We know that there's going to come a time when we, are, when we are all gathered together, and it will be easy for us to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. It's going to be easy to rally around our commonalities and forget all that divides us or challenges us. But that day's not going to come until Jesus returns. And until that day, we are called to try to to live with this idea of unity, this side of heaven. And it helps us to remember that as followers of Jesus, as inheritors of the blessing of hope and salvation, we're all one body. We're called to be one body. We're part of his body. And he reminds us that there's one spirit, capital S, there's one Holy Spirit that works on and through us all. Which he also referred to as it's the spirit that gives us strength to do all these things. We have a common hope that that Jesus is coming back to claim his church. We have one Lord, Jesus. We have one faith. That is this settled body of truth that leads us to salvation. I think Paul's referring back here to those first three chapters, the the doctrine, the orthodoxy part. There's that one faith. We have one baptism, the the baptism of the Spirit, that moment at our salvation when the Spirit moves in and, and we join in with the collective body of Christ. And he says there's one God and Father of all who is over everything and everyone. Seven different things that remind us all these things that we have in common. Seven things to keep us focused on unity rather than division. But I will point out that Paul is calling for unity among the saints, but he also refers to there being one faith. There's one standard of Christian orthodoxy. As long as we are in agreement on the one faith part, we should be unified in all the other little things. But Paul is not saying that unity should be extended to everyone who claims to be spiritual. We're not called to unify with those who deny elements of the faith. So this call for unity is not comprehensive in that we must accept and fellowship with anybody who calls themselves Christians. For example, people who like to pick and choose which parts of the Bible they want to follow, and somehow they'll discount the rest. This is not a call to universalism. It's not a call to ecumenicism. All faiths lead to the same destination. Paul is making kind of a clear line of demarcation here about faith. Remember in Galatians, Paul did a pretty good job of calling out the false teachers. He didn't call for unity with the false teachers who were demanding circumcision. He called out for, I don't know, castration maybe of those who were false teachers. But unity is an expectation for those who are true followers of the faith who are committed to following Jesus according to the standards, the precepts, the guidelines laid out in his word, and this alone. And still, knowing all that we know now and and trying to understand what's laid out for us here, it's still not an easy assignment. So Paul goes on to explain how this might be possible for us. This is where Paul starts to go next. Here's how you can get better at living this out. Well, he kind of takes a quick detour first, but... He says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. That's part of what we read earlier this morning. 
In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descends is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. So, having just laid out this pretty compelling argument, these seven things that the, the, the church should be devoted to and all these things that we have in common, Paul now shifts and he starts to say, and there's going to be a number of ways that you're different. So within the unity of the church, we're going to find diversity within that unity. It's, it's not unlike, you know, the, I mean, the pattern is clear for us. We all share one common planet, but we're incredibly diverse. We have land and sea. We have people and animals. We're pretty diverse. The unified church is going to be diverse as well. But these differences, we're told, are actually gifts. They're, they're gifts of grace. That's where Paul is starting to lead us. But first, he takes us on this little rabbit trail, as Paul tends to do at times, in order to help us better understand the measure of grace that's being referred to, in order to help us understand the ability of the grace giver who dispenses these gifts of grace, Paul takes a little time out to explain it further, and he quotes the Old Testament to make his point. So when Paul writes, therefore it says, he starts quoting there Psalm 68, 18. Now, I think this can be a little confusing, but I'm not that smart. Maybe it makes perfect sense to you. This quick aside here seems a bit jarring and, and out of place in the flow of Paul's argument. But the big picture is, if we kind of step back and see where Paul's going, the big picture is these few verses are just a reminder to us that it's Christ who gives grace, and he can do that because he's the Savior. He's the victor. He's the conqueror. He's the champion. By defeating death and the devil through resurrection, Jesus established his power and his authority over the lower realm as well as the heavenly realm. He's Lord of all. And if he wants to give you a gift of grace, you're going to get it. Christ is fully capable, perfectly willing to dispense gifts of grace and blessing. So this passage in Psalm is really kind of interesting in the larger context of the rest of the Psalm. It refers to, uh, originally it was written about God saving and restoring the nation of Israel. So they were rescued from captivity in Egypt and they were, were restored to their place in the world. So true to what had been covenanted with Abraham, Israel had been blessed been rescued out of captivity so that they could continue to be a blessing to the rest of the world. I wonder if that's the same point Paul is making here with the church. Not only are we blessed with Christ's gift of grace working through our, our salvation, but we become instruments of grace so that we can be a blessing. We are blessed so that we can be a blessing. We haven't just received a gift of grace, but we are made into gifts of grace. That's kind of amazing. But we are all gifted in different ways to do different things. He continues. And he gave, this is this gifts of grace, he gave the gifts, uh, the, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. So Paul just lays out here this, this short list of, of gifts given to the church by the Spirit at the direction of Christ according to the will of God, the Father who is over all and in all and through all. And this list includes apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. 
Now, there's some discussion, you know, people who have a lot of time and think through these things. There's a lot of discussion as to whether what Paul's referring to here are, are um, maybe these are offices of the church, or whether these are just descriptions of activities that flow from the church. I mean, apostle means messenger. We looked at this before, um, and as we have discussed in times past, capital A, apostle, in Scripture, always refers to one of the men who were hand-selected to serve with Jesus, or in Paul's case, just after Jesus' death, but he was still selected by Jesus, and they shared the message of the gospel until they died. Small a, apostle, applies to every believer. We are all messengers. We're all commanded to go and share the good news. So it's kind of more of a function than a position. We're all called to be apostles. And prophet just means a proclaimer of God's word. So when when we share verses from the Bible with somebody, when we maybe walk them through the Roman road of salvation, we're being prophets. We're being proclaimers of the word. Now, prophet can also mean someone who receives special insight from the Lord and, and shares that with other people. But frankly, this usage is far less common, especially in the New Testament, than just the idea of sharing what God has already revealed through his word. Now, I'm not suggesting that the Lord does not speak to people, but we do have his complete revealed word. There's a modern-day prophet industry within the larger church. Um, They would have us believe that the church needs them so that we can continue to get heavenly updates as we go forward. We need to exercise discernment with people who are claiming to have the office of prophet rather than the function of prophet. Evangelists were just itinerant traveling ministers, maybe like our our missionaries. Um, And then we get to the shepherds or or the pastors and teachers part. Generally speaking, at the time Paul's writing, the the shepherds and the teachers were those people who were kind of stationary. They were part of the the local body, the local church. They were assigned to a particular church. They were still messengers. They were still proclaimers. But they were set up for a particular church. And there's a distinction here made between the pastoral role, or shepherding as it's laid out here, and the teaching role, which is called teaching. They are connected, but they are not the same. It turns out that pastoring or shepherding is way harder. Teaching is much more fun. (laughs) So Christ has given these people, he's gifted these people, to fulfill these functions within the local church. They were equipped, they were gifted to do these things. I do think it's interesting, we'll take just a minute to look at this, this list of gifts that Paul describes here, because he provides similar lists or gifts to the church in 1 Corinthians and Romans. In Ephesians, we have apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers. In Romans, he lists prophecy, service, teaching, exhortation, financial support. It's a part of worship, which is why we're reintegrating the taking of the offering as part of the service. It's, it's generosity in general, zealous leadership. In the Corinthian church, he he refers to utterance of wisdom, utterance of knowledge, faith, healing, working of miracles, prophecy, discernment, tongues, and interpretation of tongues. Now, obviously, these lists are a little bit different, but they're not radically different lists. There's a lot of overlap here. Now, I don't know why, really. Maybe Paul was highlighting, as he's writing to these specific churches, he's writing these lists of gifts that are more specific to them. 
here's the things that they need, or here's the things that he knows about those church, those gifts that exist. But if you look at them and study them a little bit, they're really kind of different ways of saying a lot of the same things. What is abundantly clear is that there is a great diversity of giftedness within the gathering of the saints. We are not cookie-cutter Christians. We're not all designed to do the same things in the same way. There is diversity of giftedness within the unity of the church, and this is how the Lord wants it. It's how Christ has gifted us. It's how he's filled out the churches. But interestingly, ironically even, this can become another area where, where the church can get into troubled waters when we don't practice humility. We start comparing gifts. Or we contrast gifts. Or we start to value some gifts over and above other gifts. Some of these are clearly more spiritual than others of these, right? Or maybe, maybe we even become disappointed with the gifts that we were given and we're jealous of somebody else's giftedness and, and we allow this to become a problem. And, and here's a common example, I think. Most of you know there are a lot of churches, denominations even, that have declared that you are probably, you are probably less spirit-filled if you do not speak in tongues. So they've elevated that gift to the church above many of the other gifts to the church. So they're not celebrating diversity so much as demanding conformity. If you're really spirit-filled, you'll live like this. Now there's a theological term, or a response to that. Um, it's hogwash and poppycock. <laughs> Pretty sure those are from the Greek. <laughs> Grace was given to each of us in the measure of Christ's gift. It has little or nothing to do with us. We are the recipient of this gift. So our valuation, our estimation of one gift above another gets us back into a humility issue. Our old selfish nature kicks in. Jealousy, whatever it is, it causes us to lose sight of the fact that we're grumbling about a gift. We're unhappy about something that has been given to us. I mean, it's a gift of grace. It was given to us specifically by the victor, the conqueror, the champion, the savior. So rather than get caught up with what we have or maybe what we don't have, we ought to focus on what we are to do with what we have. These gifts are to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. This seems pretty clear. Your particular gift, whatever it is you've been given, apostle, healing, tongues, prophecy, whatever it is, your gift was given to you for a reason, and it was for equipping the saints and for building up the body. And the body needs to be built up until we attain unity of faith. Until we attain maturity, which is the standard. The measure is Christ. Some commentators suggest that this word building here might better be the word perfecting, which makes sense. I mean, if Christ-likeness is our goal, holy and blameless is our goal, that's the standard, then the act of perfecting is a good way to look at it because we're not there. So you'll notice that the apostles, the prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers are not your paid ministers. They are not your minister proxies. 
Their job, it says, their function is to equip, to train for the work of ministry. We're all training each other so that we can all participate in ministry together. I feel like we lose sight of this sometimes. The, the, the church was designed, always designed, to be active rather than passive. We gather to learn God's word. We gather to encourage one another, to challenge one another, to teach, to exhort one another so that we can go out and do battle during the week. And then we come back in and do that process all over again. It's like a, a weekly spiritual boot camp. We come back and we heal, we, we build up, we encourage, we drill, we prepare so we can be better Jesus soldiers when we're out there. And in too many cases, the modern church, the modern church service has become a weekly gathering for the like-minded. It's family-friendly gathering where we can hear super slick wolves in sheep clothing spout spiritual aphorisms and self-help platitudes. I'm going to get that tattooed, I think. (laughs) And these services are all designed to help us feel better about our brokenness, an increasingly common word that we use to avoid sin. You know, come on, people. It's been a hard week, but go back out there and give it the old college try next week, and we'll come back next week, and we'll sing some songs that don't really mean anything, but they'll be flashing lights, and you'll love it you'll feel better at the end. And it it becomes passive. We come and watch a show. It's not active where we're encouraging and building up. The gifts given to us are all to be used by us all to move us all in a Christerly direction. Move us more towards Christ, to help us grow in faith, to help us grow in knowledge of the Son of God, to mature us into Christ-likeness. That's the blueprint that was laid out for the church, to help us see and understand more clearly the value in a unified and functioning church. Paul gives us something to compare to, just to make sure we get the point. He starts to the next verse, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So the options laid out for us here, the, the, the members of the church who, who are all functioning, uh, they're contributing in their giftedness, We're all doing the work of the ministry. We're speaking in truth, which can be hard sometimes. We're speaking the truth, but in love to people. We're making sure the whole body is a well-oiled machine, or we're acting like a bunch of spoiled, selfish, entitled babies who are going to be tossed around by every wind of cultural stupidity like a birthing parent day. We're going to be turned over. We're going to be tossed out by smooth-talking hucksters. We're going to be suckered into believing every lie of the devil, especially when it comes nicely wrapped in scriptural misappropriations. I think I'm going to have that tattooed, too. Scriptural misappropriation. The devil constantly seeks to undo what Jesus is doing through the church. And we need to be on guard. We need to be aware of our own faults and failings. We need to be asking for and accept, accepting the help of the Spirit who will guide and lead us into truth. 
And we are to use our gifts, whatever they are, for the building up of the church. And therefore, the kingdom of Christ. When we step away from the church, there is a lack. There's a hole. We leave a hole. A, a, A body part is not functioning properly. We need to recapture the idea that when we commit to Jesus, we commit to his church. It's part of the calling. It's a package deal. You know, last week, one of our prayer requests was that this church, this local, I don't know, kneecap of the global body, that this church would grow in effectiveness, that we would increase in our impact in the community. It's a great prayer. It should be an ongoing prayer for us. And the fact is that has to start with us individually and our individual efforts toward Christ-likeness, how we walk, try to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. And then this is the part that's truly amazing. Even though that we are not all perfect, we're not close, somehow... And all of our imperfection and all of our, our foibles and failings, somehow in God's math, when we all come together as the church, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. When we pull our collective imperfections, but hopefully with higher goals and aspirations, when we collectively join in to do the work of the ministry, each with our own shortcomings and, and, and mistakes, but committed to the body, somehow the body is healthy and whole and functions better even though every part is ailing. So we need to consider, what is our commitment to the church? What is our commitment to unity of the saints and the bond of peace? If we have new life through salvation, then we have a new purpose. We have a new family. We have new, different relationships. Not perfect. People will continue to disappoint. Me to you, you to me. We're not perfect, but we are perfecting. And my gripes and and my disappointments, my frustrations, my preferences over music or preaching style or whatever it is, are those worth more to me? Are, Are those things more valuable to me than the seven things we have in common as believers? Am I more concerned about the style of music than we have one faith, one God overall? I mean, we should rejoice, we should celebrate, we should rally around one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God the Father, and the rest needs to let go. We need to bear with the others around us, bear with them in love, just as they are bearing with us. Because it is the church, not the government, it is the church that will change the culture. The question is, how? Are we just going to give in and go along and make concessions because it's easier? Or are we going to unite and stand for truth? I'm not sure that question has ever been more important in our lifetimes. How are we going to respond? We'll get to talk about that more next week. I'm so excited. Let's pray.